When you play the Game of Thrones, you win or you die. There is no middle ground. You are now listening to The Big Trade with Peter Pham. Enlightening conversations for maximum market returns. Marin, why don't you introduce yourself to the audience? Sure. My name is Marin Katusa. I'm from Canada. I run the hedge funds, uh, three hedge funds, KCO, KCR, and the KC50, and uh, just started up Katusa Research. Excellent. Tell me a little bit about Katusa Research for a bit. Yeah, so I spent a decade with Doug at uh, Casey Research mainly as the main energy guy there and focusing on more on the junior private placements. Um, with the changes that happened at Casey Research, I decided to start up my own firm and Katusa Research. Uh, we provide all our research for free. We provide market commentary, market arbitrage opportunities, and it's all focused on the resource sector, both, both hard rock and soft rock. Hmm, very interesting. Where, whereabouts in Canada are you located right now? Right in the hub of the junior resource sector, right in downtown Vancouver. Oh, I was actually born in um, Vancouver Island in Campbell River. Yeah. yeah. Um, so let, let's discuss about your book, um, The Colder War. A lot's happened, right? We've seen the decline of oil prices. We've seen a little bit of a retracement. We've seen uh, a significant appreciation of the U.S. dollar, and we've seen a little bit of a pullback. A lot's happened geopolitically. I know your book covers a lot of this, um, especially in terms of like Russia and its agreements with Gazprom. And actually, Russia's very active with all sorts of Asian nations in terms of some of their state-owned oil and gas companies as well. So what's what's the latest in terms of what you cover in the book, and how does that reflect the actual current current events right now? Well, you know, with, with the, the price of oil being dropped in half, a lot of people expected uh, a lot of the Russian oil production to decrease significantly. And what we said in the book was whether oil drops or stays stronger, the Russians have committed themselves to, you know, creating resources as the foundation of their economy. So we've actually seen that the Russian crude uh, productions actually increased since October. So even though oil's dropped in half, the Russians are increasing production. We've seen Saudi Arabia actually increase production. And we've seen that the shale uh, oil production in the U.S. has been holding quite strong. So what we really see here moving forward is the Russians are using the leverage that they have, which is in Europe, the natural gas and oil. So we've seen that the the Russians are moving forward with building the giant uh, gas pipeline down to Turkey, and then that would bypass the Ukrainian gas pipeline. So it's kind of an alternate version of the South Stream. And we see that uh, the Russians and the Chinese are working closer together than ever uh, on long-term contracts, both natural gas, but you see now the crude pipelines and you see much more moving forward. You look at what's going on with uh, now the Russians and the Chinese on a joint venture with Russia's largest gold company and China creating the world's largest gold fund. So we see a lot of synergies between the emerging markets working together in unison against the interests of the U.S. And that's all been playing out, and it's going to continue to play out for the next decade or two. What's really interesting, I noticed, Mirren, is that um, 
Russia has also been in, in a lot of negotiations with um, Vietnam. And as you know, Vietnam's having a lot of geopolitical issues in terms of land grabbing in the South China Sea. Um, the interesting dynamic is that Russia's in negotiations with Vietnam to discuss about acquiring um, its state-owned oil and gas company, which is Petro-Vietnam. Um, they have a refinery somewhere in central Vietnam, which is off the coast about 20 kilometers away from where you see all these disputes um, in, in, in terms of the islands. How can Russia continue to develop its relationships in, in Asia? And how does China fit into that equation as well? Do you have any sense on that? Well, definitely. If you look at the South China Sea, that's going to be a major hot button moving forward. You look at technology, whether it's oil and gas, refining, crude, but also nuclear is a big one that no one's talking about that the Russians are really pushing forward in Asia. Right. So they're using all of the resources and all of their technology. Also, the Russians aren't shy to use their military contracts to get what they want also. Yeah. So, you know, the answer is all of the above. It's it's quite interesting, right? Because they're a supplier for, like, say, for example, these nuclear-powered submarines in the South China Sea, which are almost designed to be a defense against any kind of Chinese aggression, although they're also having a lot of these deals and arrangements that are extremely economically beneficial with China. So it's kind of like an interesting juxtaposition that they're taking on on both um, issues and stances. Correct. And you'll see more of that moving forward. So will that mean that the Russians are positioning themselves as the bridge between the alliances in Asia or are they working together against the interests of the Western alliances in Asia? You know, this will all be played out in the next decade. But, you know, you can guarantee that the Russians will be involved somehow. This sounds like an episode of Game of Thrones, actually, if you, you come to think about it. Or, or a great uh, movie of James Bond. You know, when you really look at what Putin was doing, he'd be a fantastic character in the next James Bond movie. On, on that very subject, what is you highlight a little bit of his long-term strategy, and you talk about his viability in terms of this position, despite the decline of the oil price. Um, why, why do you believe, and I know you've indicated it, is why do you believe that Putin still has a, almost like a stronghold onto Russia? And what is his long-term strategy, according to what you indicate in your book? Well, first of all, you have to understand where, what is the Russian state of mind? You know, what is their frame of reference here? And you look at what you know, I call him the Slavic warrior, because that's what the Russian people see him as. Now, the Russians outside of Russia... And the Western medium will, will view him as a thug, as a barbarian, as an you know, uh, you know, almost as a dictator. But the reality here is, is if you look at what the Russians have gone through from Stalingrad to the communist days to the collapse of the Soviet Union to the oligarch, um, you know, hustle. Basically, when they went bankrupt, then Putin came in, and Putin sees himself as the next Peter the Great of Russia. And granted, he had the commodity super still behind him, but the reality is, is he created the super fund. He positioned Russia to get through all of the rough times. So the 2008 financial crisis, Russia got through it actually better than before. So you look at what's going on now, and a lot of the Western media, when I did my book tour, said, oh, Putin's done. You know, oil's done in half, and I argue that, no, you have to understand the Russian view of Putin, and they view him as 
a icon as Peter the Great type of character, and they're bringing that he is bringing Russia back to its superpower status that it once held. So you, you actually look at the numbers, Putin's more popular today than ever before, and the people are behind him in Russia. Now, look, we have a Western view, we have a very different view of things, but the reality is, is things in Russia are done very differently than here in Canada or in the U.S., the reality is, is he has the people behind him. He has the natural resources behind him. It's been proven, even though the collapse of the ruble and the collapse of the oil, he still increased his firm grip over the power of Russia, and he's increased his international presence. And that's seen by the major deals he's done with China and other nations um, regarding long-term contracts. So that kind of sums where Putin got his long-term vision to establish Russia as a global superpower. Now, in terms of, um, I, I understand in terms of like the the popularity, um, almost like a, a cult of personality that he's built for himself. But as we've seen, um, you know, years ago in terms of the decline of the Soviet Union, where's the economic feasibility in terms of Russia? I, I'd like to hear about like how they're able to sustain these decline in oil prices as they adjust the price of the ruble and their monetary policy. And also I hear anecdotally that he himself is also very independently wealthy. Do you have any insight on some of this stuff? Sure. So um, the first question is, is, you know, what's the sustainability of their resource market? Right. The, to understand that, you have to understand what is something called the Dutch disease. And the key here is whether you're in Canada, Australia, or, or Russia, you want uh, a weak currency if you're an exporting nation. And that's what Russia is. They export natural gas. They export their, their crude oil. They export their uranium. They export their natural resources. So what happens with a, a vastly decreasing ruble is their costs start to decrease because they sell in euros, they sell in yuan, they sell in U.S. dollars. So they're getting rid of these weak rubles, but they're bringing in stronger currencies. So their profit margins actually increase. But moving forward, you know, what does that position them for? Well, there's no question that, you know, the resources have had a deflation. So the CapEx, you're probably not going to increase your CapEx. But, you know, people fail to understand, though, even though there's been sanctions against Russia, Exxon, which is America's largest oil company, has increased their land position in Russia in 2014 by over 500 percent. And Exxon actually has over 330 percent more land in Russia than they do in America. So that's what Putin's going to keep bringing large companies like Exxon or what he just announced last week with the national Chinese company where they're going to be investing their dollars to build up the infrastructure and the technology. That's why they want Exxon there. Now, you know, why does no one in the Western media talk about that Exxon has increased their their land holdings by over 500% in Russia, and they have over 300% more land in Russia than they do, more acreage, more exploration assets than they have in America, and yet it's an American company? Well, who do you think the largest company for oil that all the senators and you know, politicians hold? 
It's Exxon, who has the largest lobbying group in Washington. It's Exxon. So is it just coincidence that Exxon doesn't have to follow the rules of all the sanctions that everyone else does? So to answer your question about the politicians, you go look at any emerging nations, whether it's the Chinese, how do the, there, there's over 100 politicians in China who are billionaires but have never been in private industry. So whether you look at in Argentina or any of the emerging markets, all politicians, I believe, as Doug Casey famously says, they go to become not millionaires but be billionaires. That's the reason why you get politicians in the emerging markets. In my book, I do discuss you know, the, the links to all of Putin's friends, right. and all of his inside circle are billionaires, yet Putin calls shots. So it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that if all of your buddies are billionaires and you're calling the shots, who's truly the most powerful man? Well, it's Putin. So is he probably super wealthy behind the scenes? Of course he is. All politicians get in there for their own interests. It's very, very rare a politician actually does it for the greater good of the people. I'm sure he has those motives like most politicians, but the temptation is too great for any person. This leads to a lot of very interesting subjects we can, we can touch on, and I don't know if how much time we have to cover all of this, but okay, let's talk about the um, the, the trade in terms of exports, right? Um, so Russia is collecting all sorts of different a mix of uh, different kinds of forex reserves that they're building up. You discuss about the ever growing presence of the BRIC bank because of this kind of trade between Russia and China. How how influential do you think the BRIC Bank will eventually be? And are there any plans to implement, like a, a gentleman like Jim Rickards will talk about, uh, implementing IMF forms of currency? Is there a currency alternative? A lot of the gold bugs will love to say that these kind of countries are building up their bullion reserves as well. Well, I think what the new BRIC Bank will really be is an alternate choice to the IMF. And it's no secret that it's the Americans that run the IMF. Right. It's the Americans that run, you know, NATO. So all of these factors here, the emerging markets have realized that none of them can take on the American superpower alone, but united, they created an alternative choice for the emerging markets. And I think that is what this is all about. Now, will the SDRs come in? Well, that's just another alternative um, and I think the emerging markets are going to use not just gold, but other imaginary variables will come into play that we haven't even thought about yet. And with the global cooling that we've seen, you'll see more drastic measures be made because the reality is, is so the SDRs are also another you know, alternative. But what will happen, I think you'll see a lot of, uh, you know, alternatives here. Yes, gold will play into the mix. Other variables will come in that we haven't thought about. And yet, you, know, you look at the U.S., Japan, Europe, these are all financial growth when you look at their obligation, the pensions, and health care moving forward. So, you know, the question here is in the near term, the emerging markets will have a tough time because the reality is, is with a strong dollar, the emerging markets are going to be lacking that strong dollar investment for you know, resources for the infrastructure because the U.S. dollar is now flying back into the U.S. chasing yield and safety. So after we get through this next blip, it 
could be two years, it could be three years, I don't know. But then you'll really start seeing the, the new brick bank establishing itself in the emerging markets. And that's where it'll get really interesting is after this near-term play on the dollar, what's going to happen here with the emerging markets? And, you know, the natural evolution of history will say that, you know, the emerging markets will unite, they'll start developing their own structure, and they'll need less of the IMF bank, and they'll start going more of the new BRIC bank. So that's the way I see this all going. It's going to be a gradual shift to the power in the emerging markets. Do you have any idea on how much in terms of reserves the BRIC bank currently has? I know that the IMF has somewhere near... Um, 700 billion the last time I checked, which would be sufficient enough to match um, any kind of like special emergency um, bailout, as we indicated last time. But how much does the BRIC actually have they managed to mobilize? They've got about a third of that. And that's just the beginning. It's really backed by the Chinese than the Russians. Right. Um, Now, Brazil's having their own issues and India's having their own issues. But the reality here is is that, you know, when you look at what's going on in Greece, you look at what's going on where the IMF is already invested, that will be for what they've already have at risk. Where the Brick Bank, even though it's much smaller right now, they're not as invested. So think of it as your portfolio. you got to save your existing investments with the cash you have where the Brick Bank is starting brand new. So, you know, moving forward, I'd much rather be in the brick bank uh, position than the IMF because the IMF has a lot of problems on its hands coming in the near term here. So that's the best way to look at it. Although I would argue kind of like, hey, because of the the credibility of some of these nations, you know, and and I'm sure if you – well, there's a few ways if you can want to assess their credit ratings, for instance. But I'd I'd assume I'd feel a lot more comfortable to know that there were – a significantly larger amount of reserves for this brick bank to even establish its own credibility. I, I, I'd, I'd probably like to see more. I know you're saying you'd side with the brick bank, but if there's not that much in terms of reserves, I'd feel much more comfortable with the, what the IMF at least has managed to mobilize in some extent, especially problem. dealing with Eastern Europeans and Asian nations like this. Yeah, the, the problem with the IMF is that, you know, it's a very... American-focused bank, whereas when you look at the BRIC bank, you just pointed to it. You've got the Eastern European nations. You've got, you know, the Slavic nations. You've got the Asian market. So there's going to be a balance, and I think there'll be a negotiation where there's not one country calling the shots. Right. Where with the IMF, there's no secret that it's the U.S. calling the shots. So you get really the difference, and it's an alternative what I was trying to get at with the BRIC Bank is is that they're not already invested heavily like the IMF in okay. countries like Argentina and all that. So that's the difference. Oh, in terms of like um, their their credit lending and investments that's, that they made. Okay. That's gotcha. correct. Gotcha. What about uh, on this whole subject of Forex as well is does this not legitimize the, the renminbi a little bit more as well? I know you indicated how it's heavily traded and one of the most traded currencies in the world now. Um, how, how does the renminbi play into this? We have a big position well, think, in dim sum bonds. That's why we're very interested in that. Well, I think it's very important. A lot of people haven't realized that in the fourth quarter of 2014, the renminbi took over the euro as the second most traded currency in the world next to the dollar. So I'm not saying that in the near term it's going to take over the dollar. What I am saying is it, it's it's more traded than the euro. So yet 
us here in the Western world, we're not paying attention to it yet. But you go to Russia and you've seen a quadruple increase in the trading in the in the in the renminbi on their goods and trade and that's what you're going to see more more so you go to iran saudi arabia same thing so where the chinese don't really care where they get their oil from whether it's iran kuwait russia saudi arabia they just want to get the oil to keep the dragon moving so that's the big difference here and you've seen very quietly it become the second most traded currency in the world, and yet you don't see that anywhere on the front page in the, in the Western world, you know. But you do see Greece, you know, the Greek exit. You see all these facts on the front page, and the Western world's focusing on things that don't matter. Greece, in the grand scheme of things, is irrelevant, right. you know. Yet China is what we need to be focusing on. India is what we need to be focusing on because when you've got billions of people in the emerging markets, that's where the trend is going to be and the trend is your friend. You know, you got to look at a lot of the broken, bankrupt uh, European countries as museums. That's pretty much what they've become. You know, it's a corrupt society. It's in debt. You go to Greece and if you travel through Greece, you can't use a credit card because it's a cash economy. No one's talking about the harsh realities of the country. They don't pay their taxes, the infrastructure, just like you go through Rome. You know, they have all such political tape to set up a business. So, you know, there's going to be a lot of changes in the Western world. But if you want to focus and you're a young person who wants to make a fortune, focus in the emerging markets. That's where the fortunes will be. On that subject of, of emerging markets and China's need for natural gas, for example, does this put a little bit of a damper on the, the hope and optimism that America has in terms of being able to export um, LNG to these kind of countries? I've had a conversation with, I think, Chris Matherson one time saying that probably America is already not in an advantageous position to export to Asia anyways. Australia is building up the infrastructure and they're much closer and much more developed in terms of being able to export LNG into Asia. And Quator is already set up and building those kind of relationships, whereas the U.S. doesn't even have that capability or not even near that in terms of getting the licensing from from the government. So by building this pipeline from Russia to China, does that not fulfill a lot of the natural gas needs uh, for, for some of these countries in Asia. Okay, so first off, a lot of people don't know that Taiwan imports more LNG than China, okay? okay. So put in the grand spectra. So people, when they talk LNG, you have to really focus that two countries Japan. consume 50... Yeah. That's right. Japan and Korea consume 52% of the world's LNG right now. So... It's really changed here, and I wrote an article a few years ago, the greatest energy bubble that we've seen in our generation is going to be LNG. Why? Because a liquefaction plant costs in the billions of dollars to build, Mm -hmm. and yet you sign these 20-year contracts today, but the buyer of that gas can change the contract in the future, and now you're stuck with this infrastructure. So 15 years ago, everyone in the U.S. was building these import LNG facilities, because they expected, you know, the, the U.S. would have to import so much gas, and yet, you know, the the experts were so wrong. The sector took care of itself. The shale revolution happened. And now they want to become exporters. Right now, 
Australia is part of the answer. Australia has about a four or five year head start on the Americans, and the Americans have a few years head start on the Canadians. Mm -hmm. But what the real game changer here is going to be, yes, Qatar is the Saudi Arabia of LNG. That was developed through a joint venture with Shell. But more importantly, people forget that the Russians have about a quarter of the conventional natural gas in the world. And the game changer for natural gas is going to be something called FLNG, floating LNG. I wrote about it five years ago, and now the Russians are now on their third FLNG ship. Shell has an operating FLNG ship. And and what I love about this is an existing liquefaction plant is is fixed you can't move it right. and you know a government can tax it a terrorist can blow it up with a one five thousand dollar rocket there's so much problems with it but if you have a floating lng facility it's the same type of concept except if there's problems with the government and tax no problem you lift anchor and you go to all of these stranded gas deposits and and, and even though the american have had huge success with the shale gas they can't condense it and ship it for the price that Qatar or the Russians can sell into Asia. Mm-hmm. And more importantly is once Japan brings back even, let's say, a quarter, just a quarter of their 54 nukes that are offline right now, you're going to see a major decrease in demand in LNG. And people forget that China has a massive shale gas uh, formation called the Szechuan Basin. Right. That the majors like Schlumberger and Halliburton and Shell and Chevron – they're there and really developing the infrastructure. So, you know, I, I don't see China becoming the major buyer of global LNG near Japan, which makes up 38% of all global LNG today is bought by Japan. Mm-hmm. In, in terms of um, some of the events that have happened recently in, in, in the United States, what do you think is is like because I, I was in Houston recently and everyone's still relatively optimistic that um, you're going to see a recovery in oil prices. Any companies that were under distress or temporarily under distress um, should be able to get through um, some of these initial headwinds. Um, what are your thoughts on all that? You know, a lot of the companies have been able to succeed during this last downturn because of hedges and you know when you do a debt facility mandatory you're going to have a debt coverage and the producers are going to have to hedge themselves to meet the covenants of the debt mm-hmm. now this will all roll over is what happens where now those 80 and 90 dollar hedges unwind because time comes in and they've expired they've matured and now they these companies have to sign future hedges and $90 isn't available and it's $55, that's when you'll see the big turnover happen. And that's why there's billions and billions of dollars on the sidelines, not waiting to invest in these companies, but to buy the debt or basically when they default, buy the assets. So we've already seen the shale oil cost drop from $80 per barrel to $60 barrel over the last nine months. And I think in the next five to 10 years, you'll see another $10, $15 drop because innovation via necessity. And they're not drilling the outer skirts of the formations. They're drilling the belly where it's the highest return on investment. And I think that the right companies will do just fine. 
you'll see a consolidation in the sector. But be very, very careful. If you're invested in one of the higher cost producers who have high debt, you're going to be imploded. And the last person to get any value is the shareholder because debt, you never want to invest. Capital structure. That's correct. So be very careful. So one of the things I know that you also talk about or speculate a lot about on is uh, potential black swans. And frankly, um, as we've seen this minor pullback in terms of the U.S. dollar and, uh, you know, retracement in terms of the oil prices, we haven't really, at least on my gauge, I I would assess that we haven't really seen any kind of black swan um, to the extent that you've been been forecasting. First off, maybe for anyone that doesn't know, could you describe some things that you could potentially envision happening and what else could we be looking out for in terms of some of these potential black swans? Well, I'll just say, for example, I I think a black swan potentially could be ISIS. Mm -hmm. You know, um, Saudi Arabia has created a Frankenstein here where I don't think anyone could control ISIS now. we, we, we haven't seen them disappear the way the American military expected. And what happens now if ISIS comes into Saudi Arabia or Kuwait and, you know, you look at the two, the Strait of Hormuz, uh, basically combined with the Strait of Malacca, that it blocks up 70% of the global seaborne oil passages. Right. So that wipes out about, you know, 18 to 22 million barrels a day of uh, logistical movement of oil. That's a black swan that can really be a game changer. What happens if one of the seven choke points globally has an issue? That's a a major issue. What if, for example, the South China Sea bubble? That can be a serious game changer, uh, you know, a black swan event. Uh, Could we see a default of Greece create a, a domino effect in Europe? Potentially, that could be a black swan event. Um, I personally believe in the near term, the U.S. dollar is going to do uh, quite well, mm-hmm. and that's going to cause more pressure in the emerging markets. And, and think of it as a teeter-totter, right? You know, as one does well, the other one kind of suffers. But over the long term, the emerging markets have recognized that they have to diversify away from the U.S. dollars, and that's where the brick bank will come in and it'll slowly move forward that way. So, you know, there's a lot of black swans, and, and, and the point of a black swan is it happens because no one expects it to happen. Correct. So that's kind of uh, – and when you're managing money in speculative portfolios, you have to be aware of these types of uh, events that can really harm your portfolio. On the whole subject of the U.S., we've we actually been long the U.S. dollar for most of um, – since August of, of last year and been taking a little bit of profits on this because it would be kind of overzealous to be too too overly eager about that. Um, I know we talked about currencies earlier and how do you think – doesn't the world reserve currency status still play a very big factor into this? And how this is all connected is also – I was discussing with um, one of these terrorism experts, uh, Dr. Louise Shelley, and she was talking about the actual revenue generation of the business of basically ISIS, where they generate a lot of their revenues in U.S. dollars, actually, through crude oil, which you're very well versed in. It's, it's, it's kind of interesting to see. I'd be surprised to hear about ISIS's continued strength considering that the commodity that they're selling has also declined a lot in U.S. dollars. So the one difference there is 
they're not going out and investing in the infrastructure and exploration and development right. of these wells. Yeah. ISIS just comes in and steals the oil, so your cost is very low versus someone who develops it. So right. ISIS, even when oil was $100 a barrel, they were selling into the black market. It wasn't mm-hmm. like they were saying, well, hey, the Brent oil price is $106, we'll, we'll take a $2 discount. Yep. When you're in the black market, you sell it for whatever you can. So it, that's almost irrelevant to the, 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 the decrease in the price of oil to ISIS is irrelevant because they're selling into the black market. I and think there's still somewhat of a gauge, you know, at least not, not necessarily like on spot or future prices, but, you know, at least it's somewhat of a, a benchmark to the, the black or gray market as well. Yeah, um, we've looked into that, and they're always selling at a discount. And okay. who knows what type of contracts they've signed up? But the reality is, is when your cost base is almost zero, I don't think they really care. Right, right. But I, I can't imagine the volume of that increasing, which would you know account for some um, increase in terms of the the revenue. The this. This um, a professor actually looked into the the annual revenues of, of ISIS and stuff like that. And and in terms of ISIS, and you're talking about the Straits of Hormuz. How about this whole Iranian um, you know discussions with Obama and stuff like that? Doesn't that also help mitigate any kind of concerns about Hormuz? Uh, opposite. You see, Saudi Arabia is now talking about bringing in nuclear missiles. Um, so that's a lot of tension in the area. That's a major hot button issue. And even right. though, the, uh, you know, the Iranians are saying that they, they just want this peacefully, um, the rest of the Middle East doesn't believe them. And on top of that, you have the Israeli fears of it. So there's a lot of tension built in the region. Okay. Well, Marin, let's. This has been fantastic. Let's just finish off quickly by discussing about some investment methodologies. And would you be able to share uh, a little about, like, you know, what? Maybe I don't know if what the mandates of your funds are, but in terms of like your investing conventions and and you know the methodologies that you um, subscribe to. Sure. Um, the mandate of our fund is to invest in the in the resource sector. And from my uh, experience, what I try to always do is invest in the right management teams. People is the most key critical aspect. So when I invest in a company, for example, like Brazil Resources, which we're a reporting issuer, it's publicly traded on the venture exchange. Management are the largest investors in the deal themselves. Mm -hmm. That's number one sign. Number two, they have experience in the sector and more importantly, uh, know what they're doing. They're committed. They're focus factors. So that's the second important thing. Number third is, okay, who have they brought in from a technical side, uh, whether it's geological or engineering, to be able to advance the assets and, and what experience do they have in that region? And that's what we really, for example, if you want to use a case study, where BRI or Brazil Resources, they have the you know one of the largest investment bankers in Brazil, uh, Brazil Invest in the region and they're consolidating assets literally for five or ten cents on the dollar so they went and bought out a company for 12 million dollars that spent a hundred million dollars developing the assets so that's an example of what we like to do you try to be a contrarian but in at the same price as management 
you stick with the management over five to seven years and hopefully have a big score. Um, that's essentially the mandate of the fund. Like when we did Quadrilla, nobody even talked about European shale gas. Well, we got in at the ground floor uh, with management at the same price as management. Management were some of the best shale people in the world. And, you know, four years later, it was a massive success for us. So that's an example of, you know, going where no one is with the people who understand it. And they may not have the best asset in the world to begin with, but I've learned long ago that average management will screw up the best rocks and great management will acquire great projects. So you got to patience, invest with the right people. And, you know, the junior resource sector is a very high-risk sector, so you have to be able to tolerate risk. So you have to diversify your portfolio where you don't put all your eggs in one basket. And the biggest success that we've had was, you know, not overcommitting your fund too early uh, because the resource sector is so cyclical in nature. You have to really be patient in your, in your purchases because liquidity is such a difficult aspect getting out of these stocks is very difficult. A lot of this, um, these conventions that you discuss about in terms of the mandate of your fund are very similar to um, what Rick Rule was saying. And I, I get a sense that unless you are able to work directly with management, being able to execute deals, potentially participate in private placements or even private equity or mezzanine kind of finance structures – that it would be very difficult for someone with just an average brokerage account to buy some of these listed equities because they're not going to get the same kind of corporate access and the same kind of deals like you. Is is that? Do you think there's still any potential for like just the average guy sitting, say, in Toronto and with a um, what is it TD Ameritrade account um, trying to buy some equities? I think it all depends on who the person is, right? Uh, even having access, like there isn't a deal that doesn't come through my desk, right. come through my office in Vancouver that I don't see. Um, even with all the great access, that doesn't ensure success, right? So it's right. still a difficult game. So I guess it really comes to the person. I know a lot of people that don't do private placements and do just fine because they do the due diligence themselves and they know the game and they really understand what they're investing in. But I think a bigger question is what you're trying to get at is, you know, until the big money gets into the market, you know, that, that day trading success that people are having in the U.S., you know, markets right now or in the Asian markets, you look at the Shanghai or the Hong Kong, Right, that doesn't exist right now. The reality is, is that the people who are really interested in resource stocks between 2006 and 2011, if you ask them today, I'd say nine out of 10 have lost money on it. They've been burnt and they just right. don't go back until you get the money coming back into the sector. And it will, it always does. It's just the question is when, at that point, the liquidity for these juniors will really dry up. So right now, why I love these markets is if you have cash and have access to the markets, you can structure deals with long-term, full five-year listed warrants. And you know, hopefully when the markets do come back, you're positioned at the ground floor for the next run in the markets. Now, it could be that we're still too early here. I don't know. Nobody does know, but you just try to pick your spots, do your due diligence, and invest with as best management as you can. 
And history has proven that, you know, I remember when Rick and I financed uh, Africa Oil. Mm-hmm. We were the largest shareholders with the Lundins. I actually sold the 10BB block. It was a private company that I structured called Turkana mm-hmm. to Africa Oil. And in January of 2009, we literally, the three of us, Lucas, Lundin, uh, Rick, and I, bent over backwards to finance $30 million. And, you know, for three years, it essentially just bobbled around a dollar. And within a four-month span, when the first well came out, it popped $12. So that's an example of how these markets move. Another good example is when, you know, I'm one of the founders of a company called Copper Mountain, which is the third largest producing copper company in Canada. And I remember telling everyone on TV and everything at 40 cents, this is a slam dunk for a 10-bagger. And Mm -hmm. I was an insider. I was buying. I had to disclose my position. Whoever was willing to listen, I was ranting and raving about the company. I said, look. It has less, uh, the market cap is less than the cash in the bank, and you get a proven project for free. This is, this is insane. This is cheap. Buy, mm-hmm. step up to the plate. And I was wrong. I, I said it would be a 10 bagger, and it went up over 20 times in less than 30 months. So, in less than three years, you could have made 20 times your money. I believe we're in that type of market right now. I don't mm-hmm. know if it'll be two or three years like it was in the last cycle, but you know. I'm okay waiting another 10 years because the less competition I have, the better I'll be able to structure the deals and the better the big score will be at the end of the day. That's my game plan. How, how long is the period of your closed-end fund? Um, we have seven-year closed-end funds. Okay. And that's why, you know, so, if what you're year, to, What year are you on right now? Uh, well, we have three different funds. Okay. So uh, one of them I have four years left, and another one I the other two we have three years left. Okay. So saying ten years is probably not necessarily a fair period of time, right? You might have to be accountable after a four year period or so. No, definitely. But look, we've been in a bear market for uh, three years now, mm-hmm. and we were over fifty percent cash in our funds. We've outperformed the index by well over five hundred percent. I've paid a dividend of over 125% after fees and still we're flush in the fund. So we've done very well in our funds by taking a very crocodile approach, very conservative. We do a lot of debt lending in the fund, but, you know, I only hold eight positions in my fund. Okay. That's it. So, and these are positions that if I had to sell, let's just say, in two years or three Mm -hmm. years if the fund matures... It's no problem because these are positions that I know other hedge funds or management would buy the position, and you have to. That's that's what's so key investing in the juniors. You know, before you buy, you got to figure out okay if what I go outs wrong. Are. Exactly. So you're thinking about what kind of trade sales can be made. Who's a potential buyer? You know, you're probably talking about with investment banks as well, calling guys like Rick. Um, having giving him a feel of what you've got as well and what the potential exits are, right? Well, you know, Rick's just one of many guys in the sector. We have right. Rick's actually a partner in one of my funds. I don't know if you oh. knew that or not. Yeah, no, I didn't. The only, yeah, it's the only fund that uh, Rick's involved with outside of the Sprock Group. Ah. So Rick and I are very close. Uh, there, there's a lot of guys, and what happens in a bear market is the guys who are left standing. Right. We end up working very closely together because we all have the same style because we're the survivors in the market. Now, right. four years ago, I couldn't get any deal structured because the terms that would work for me 
didn't work for the bankers and the management teams. So literally for 12 months, I did nothing in my fund because I couldn't allocate the money in a way that I felt appropriate. Now, I'm the largest investor. Doug Casey's a big investor. Um, Rick Rule's a big investor in my fund. Right. And I look at these as I'm not taking – like a thing that people have to be very careful when you invest in a fund, does the manager have the same risk – set up as you right if the manager is a high flyer and he wants to make his fortune off of your dollar but if if he implodes the fund he basically walks away and doesn't have any uh pain and suffering like the shareholders you don't want to invest in that fund you want to invest in a fund that manager is the largest investor in it and if he goes down you know the whole fund goes down and he goes down with it so these are all the aspects and there's guys like john tognetti and Rob Sally and Bob Disbro, David Lyle. These are the guys who have survived Ross Beatty, Lucas Friedland. These are guys that have survived cycle after cycle. And, you know, it really becomes a really small network of all the guys doing deals together. Right. And it sounds like a lot of you guys are, I remember I spoke to Chris, um, Rick, he's got a lot of cash as well. So you guys are, you got a lot of dry powder still waiting potentially. Yep, because, you know, back in 2012, um, sorry, in 2011, I stood up at a Casey conference and said, we're entering a deflation in resources, and I'm going cash as my funds are going cash. And then in 2012, I said the same thing. We started uh, dabbling in mid-2013. We started making some larger investments in early 2014. Mm -hmm. And then basically Q4 of 2014, was probably my most active year in all the funds, and we we probably allocated about twenty million of do- uh, dollars into certain deals, but again, in just a handful of deals. So we don't. I don't do many deals, but the ones I do, I go big. But you have to know that they're really, really strong companies with excellent management teams. One more final question: When working with some of the bankers, are you able to work with American bankers, or are they just looking at Canadian deals and just saying um, no, thank you? Um, no, we work with both Canadian, Australian, British, uh, American uh, right. banker. Can work with anyone if they can get a fee. So that, that's a, 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 a universal rule. But uh, no, we can work with anyone. Okay. Well, thank you, Marion. It's a fascinating conversation. Uh, what I'll do is maybe I'll send you a link of the conversation we had with Rick because we talked about the dynamics of the currency within the portfolio as well. You might find that interesting. And also, it was really interesting uh, conversing with Doug as well. You might find those ones really fun. Fantastic. Well, all the best. Thank you very much. We hope you enjoyed this mastermind session. If you'd like to contact Peter Pham or Phoenix Capital, please email info at phx-cap.com.